Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be discussing food innovation and how we can change the food landscape, opening doors for healthier and more sustainable food products. I'll be discussing with an expert who also works with innovators to bring new food products to the shelves, Dr. Maha Tahiri. Dr. Tahiri is best known for developing game-changing strategies that translate science and technology into business opportunities. She's currently an adjunct professor at, uh, of nutrition at Tufts University and the CEO at Nutrition Sustainability Strategies, LLC a boutique consulting firm supporting early-stage startups and multi-billion dollar companies aiming to improve the food system. Previously, Maha was the Chief Health and Wellness Officer at General Mills. Maha, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for oh, having me. Um, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So it's an exciting time for innovation in the food industry. And for someone like you that breathe and leaves innovation. I'm sure it's an exciting time for you as well. But before we get into our conversation for today, I want people to get to know you. So let's kick things off by allowing our audience to learn more about you, your background, your story, what led you to your current career trajectory. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am um, Moroccan and French. I was born and raised in Morocco, and then I moved to France for college and then spent 24 years in Europe and then moved to the U.S. 10 years ago. But when I, uh, when I say that I'm Moroccan and French and moved to the U.S., it really tells you something about the cultures of food that I've been through. Mm. Um, I've been in cultures that absolutely love food. Um, with a lot of food versatility, with a lot of celebrations around food, with a lot of norms that are around food. So from the get-go, food has played a big role in my life, um, in France, in Morocco, in the U.S. actually, too. And we can talk about that a little bit uh, more. Of course, these cultures have absolutely different ways of uh, of having food in the culture, in how people express their identities, express. So I have been fascinated by food, um, not only from the nutrition side of it, because I have a PhD in human nutrition, but 
there's one sentence that resonates with me quite a bit, which is food is not about nutrients. It's about human beings. Mm. And that is really something that really, really stayed with me and helped me articulate my purpose, which is through food, I really want to impact people's life at scale. Um, and then something else happened in my life, which is I became an avid scuba diver. And um, then I added the environment and uh, sustainability into the things that I really, really care about. So I want to impact people's life and the planet with scale. That's, that's really what I would love to do and be doing. That's great. That's, it's really great getting to know that. Tell me a little bit about Moroccan food. Uh, so um, is it closer to um, what, we call, what we describe as the Mediterranean diet or is it closer to Western diet? How would you describe um, the food out there? The food in Morocco, I would say it's um, more, it's closer to the Mediterranean diet and, and the Middle Eastern diet. Okay. And okay. so we have, uh, we have a lot of diversity in what we eat. So uh, also a lot of conviviality in the way we eat. So we have a main dish that is in the middle and that could be a tagine or a couscous. A tagine by definition is um, uh, uh, meat with a lot of vegetables that have been cooked in for a long time in a in a, a uh, it's like a cone you've already probably seen that to, so that it cooks in steam etc and then all around the table you will find little salads or aubergine or cucumber or carrots. So a lot of healthy foods actually around. Mm -hmm. And you'd be very surprised. Uh, my definition of desserts evolved with my with life. Uh, so what we call dessert, and which is like absolutely what we do every day after every meal, is we actually have fruits. That's what we call dessert. So we come with a big with a big um, plate of fruits and we put it in the middle and then everybody has their own fruits to finish the meal. So that is how we finish meals in Morocco uh, by having dessert and dessert is actually a fruit. Wow, that's really impressive. So um, and it, that is not just in your household, that's generally the culture of everyone yeah. pretty much. Yeah, that is not my household. That is absolutely actually very very common practice wow that's really interesting so my, how does that my family is not sorry go ahead yeah so, so I, was, I was saying that um how does that now affect the entire population in terms of their health that would be very interesting to study um i don't think the moroccan um the moroccan population is a exceptionally healthy uh population because I think truly the uh, physical activity has decreased a lot. And the food that we eat, even though it is a traditional food, but it's a food that is really has a lot of meat, 
there is in Morocco, there is, <laughs> it is, does not qualify as a meal if it doesn't have meat. So consumption of meat is very high. Um, the, 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 um, the dish in the middle has probably has so it's very very tasty but has a lot of fat so i think there's a lot of um uh education to be done and plus we eat we have a pattern so we eat at breakfast we eat at lunch and we eat at dinner but we eat very late and whenever somebody comes to your house and this is a very convivial culture you don't, people don't have to call you on the phone to come to your house and say, hi, how are you? So they just come. So you usually have a lot of pastry and things that are prepared. And so you drink tea and the pastry maybe twice, three times a day. <laughs> so the snacking and, and it is very good, but it's high energy dense snacks. So now I get, I get where the, um, <laughs> the trade-off is. So that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. It's, um, it's a very rich culture and it's good to know more about it. So let's but move on. Very good. Oh, that's I, good. <laughs> I really, really recommend to people to go to Morocco and experience some food because it's a very, very rich cuisine and diverse. So please go. <laughs> definitely. I'll, I'll definitely look for that. I'll look for that now and see. Um, some around me. So yeah, let's move on to talk a little bit about your work at General Mills. You were the chief health and wellness officer. Was this more R&D focused or were you um, more into the production head? How did you, what was your role about when you were out there? Well, it's, um, it, it was a dream job because uh, General Mills is one of the companies that really understood at that time. Uh, and way before me, actually, that health and wellness was a competitive advantage. And so what they did that was really, really interesting is that they combined actually a lot of the aspects of health and wellness under the same roof. So my role was to lead a team of dietitians, PhDs, um, master degrees, really, really very, very brilliant people with a lot of experience. And the department was called the Bell Institute of Health and Nutrition, which was one of the really most credible institutes in the industry. And the institute actually covered research, regulatory, communications, and was operating as a platform for innovation for the businesses. So we would actually really do a lot of work to see how we can enable businesses to do claims. Uh, we would work with consumers, with the people who really were doing consumer research in the company to uh, really understand the consumer and how we can actually translate that into products that have attributes that are a little more healthy. Um, we worked to actually um, in 2005, and that was way before I joined, Jamil's launched Health Metric, which is um, uh, really, really a very, very thorough process on how to renovate and make their pro products better. And they followed it and measured it and reported every, um, every, um, every, every year. 
and the scope was global so we we, we actually globalized I, I have a global experience so i think uh it was very good in terms of like bringing more global talents and uh, not let the Bell Institute be a solely US uh, entity. Um, but we were very, very much also involved in the in the strategy of the company, in the corporate health and wellness strategy of the company, um, in the way uh, the way we market products, the way we communicate products. It's uh, it's it's really really was a very um, comprehensive role. Um, within the company. And so uh, at, at that time, really, I can say that Journals was um, very, very committed to health and wellness and they, um, they have a very comprehensive way of looking at health and wellness. That's, that's interesting. And so when, when you talk about the research team, the dietitians, and communication. So I'm, I'm guessing that the research team also does research to see the new innovative um, ingredients out there that can integrate into the products. Communications will ensure that marketing communicates the value of each product properly. And um, that's pretty much how they work together. If I, Is that correct? Yeah, they work together, but they work also with the R&D teams for, that are doing really the product R&D innovation. Uh, that were in the cereal division within R&D or snacks division or dairy division, et cetera, et cetera. And so we would work, for example, we launched um, uh, um, a good belly bar with probiotics. And so that was a very um, collaborative project where we worked with the, the R&D snacks team to help them really develop the science that is needed for them to be able to claim. It was really a, very, a long project, but we worked together in really putting that product into the market with the best messaging, with the best science to back it up, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's really great. So let's talk about innovation a bit more. Um, with your background in innovation, I'm sure you observed a lot of changes in the market space in the past few years. And one of the key things we see is many products eating the shelves, products that are enriched with different phytochemicals, adaptogens, and just um, different products really coming out. So what are your thoughts on this? Is this the future of snacking? Or what do you think? Um. I think the profile of snacking has changed over time and it has impacted even the way we eat meals. So sometimes I, there are people who even called it mini meals versus snacks. Um, the snacks have multiple functions. And so I think what we're realizing is that people snack for multiple reasons. They don't only snack for, they snack when they're hungry, they snack when they want something very enjoyable, 
this snack to have energy, this snack to increase their focus, this snack to actually not be stressed, this snack for for many reasons. And the fact that the snacking market is understanding more the consumer and understanding more the different needs of the consumer for a snack is making actually those benefits appear more and more, uh, which is great, which is, which is great, which is really stimulating innovation, which is bringing, um, bringing benefits to the table that were not necessarily 20 years ago in the, in, in the market for, for snacks. That's true. That's very true. And one of the um, things that we've all seen, the, pande the pandemic we've experienced in the past um, two years has also affected um, the food and beverage um, industry as well. But interestingly, before the pandemic, I remember writing an article for Forbes in 2019, where we talked about um, the innovation going on in food industry and the emergence of healthier products and a stronger demand from consumers for good, uh, for healthier beverage and food products. And there were data at that time that supports an increase in demand for this um, good for you products. And we also saw a shift in the market as well. More companies were producing um, products to, uh, to meet those demands. Now we had a health crisis that a global health crisis of that, that people had to deal with for a two year period, which shifts the way they think about their health and it puts health at the forefront of many people's minds. So how do you think the food industry would change in the coming years, considering the trajectory we're already on before the, the pandemic and now thinking about the future and what we'll see in the coming years? What's your, what's your thoughts on on the direction we're embarking on or what the future holds? It's a complex question because there are many forces that are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, um, everybody became obsessed by immunity. And so that was the boom for immunity because people were, whether they wanted to be vaccinated or not vaccinated, they were trying to boost their immunity. Um, and so we saw a lot of supplements. We saw a lot of food going into the direction of immunity. The top two actually um, benefits that were like, this is what consumers want it was um, mental health and immunity. Um, and it's not surprising, it's not surprising. There was a lot of isolation. There was a lot of uh, stress during the pandemic for a lot of people. Um, and so it, it does make sense that, that truly people needed to have something to help them go through the day and snacking increased during that period because people staying at home and not having a lot to do that is active etc you kind of like it's easy grabbing something and 
and, and eating it. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. Um, the other aspect is that we haven't talked about is plant-based. Um, so sorry, before I go to that, I go back to the pandemic. And in the pandemic, during the pandemic, what we saw was really a return to the legacy brands, to the big brands that consumer have actually left behind for quite some time because of distrust, distrust, distrusting the big companies because they didn't, um, they, they were just uh, a lot of issues with the big corporate corporations. But during the pandemic, it was a sure something that reassured people. First of all, they were able to deliver the products to people. They were affordable. And it's something you're familiar with. This whole situation, nobody is familiar with, but the brands that you like, the Cheerios, the da-da-da, the whatever, the crafts, the, they are, they, they've been there for a long time. So it's, so we saw people actually going back to a lot of the legacy brands that have been there for a long time. Another trend that, that is happening is plant-based. We ask consumers and everybody would say, yes, we want to move to plant-based, et cetera, et cetera, because of health and because of the environment. So we saw an increase during the pandemic of plant-based option because people were curious to say, okay, well, I'll, I'll try this. And uh, there, was, there were supply issues for, for meat. So that actually pushed some innovation in the plant-based world. Um, and a lot of people actually tried it out of curiosity. So we exposed more consumers to that. Um, I don't think it's stuck after the pandemic and we're seeing a little bit of, um, uh, of that going down. I do believe that that category will need to really be more innovative in the sense of it's seen by the consumer as a healthy category. And so it has to be at least delivering on some of the aspects clean label, people are complaining a lot about metacellulose. Whether metacellulose is a problem or not is not even the question, but when consumers perceive an ingredient as something that they can't pronounce and something that is scary to them, then we really need to be thinking about how to have shorter ingredient decks, uh, bringing more nutritional benefit to the category, and substantiation of how is it better for the environment. So the category needs to have more innovation to deliver on promises that are intuitive actually to the, um, to the, um, to the consumer. So that, um, that leads us to sustainability. So let's just stay with that topic a little bit. So when you think about um, 
uh, all our efforts to ensure sustainability, I mean, to ensure that we can actually support our growing population in a few decades from now, um, what do you think we've gotten right or we're doing right? What do you think we should be careful about? And what do you think we've not figured out at all and we need to work on? I think what we're doing right is that we are truly exploring breakthrough technologies that would very much make a difference with um, um, traditional agriculture. So let me start with the technologies that are actually linked to agriculture, because the point is not to replace all agriculture. You see what's going on in regenerative agriculture, all of the work on soil health, all of the work of farms that are really trying to become, um, to become truly even <laughs> carbon negative, not, um, not even zero. So it's possible. And there's a lot of work that is happening on regenerative agriculture that can, um, can make agriculture becoming less problematic for the environment. Second, um, we talked about plant-based, but there are really a lot of breakthrough technologies. Um, some we've been working on for already many years, like fermentation and uh, biomass fermentation, where you take uh, uh, fungus and in the bioreactor that fungus actually uh, produces um, proteins and fibers, et cetera, et cetera. And you end up with having really a very nutritious uh, product. Um, if we were to actually replace proteins by those microproteins, we would be even actually balancing the diet because we don't need more proteins. We need more fiber. So if a product is bringing 40% or 45% protein, 30% fiber, 15% fats, and other micronutrients, we're doing even a better job for, for nutrition in the Western world. Um, there is precision fermentation where you can really target one type of protein for its functionality, whether it's nutritional, whether it's functionality in the product for gelling or for this or for a lot of, of things. Then we have cell agriculture where we actually could be producing proteins of beef or can be producing meat or fish or chicken through cell agriculture. Um, so there are, that we have really a lot of technologies and promising technologies. So that's, we're doing it well. What I think we should be doing in parallel and we're not doing enough of it, which is understanding the consumer enough to say, okay, we have these technologies but let's understand what are the consumer needs, what are the jobs that needs to be done for the consumer. Because so far, it's founders of companies, it's investors that are looking and say, okay, 
um, to save the planet, we need to do this. And saving the planet is a, it's it's on my purpose. So I, I can't I can't undermine that, or I can't say it's not good or whatever. But I don't think that that is enough to be successful in a commercial strategy with the consumer. We need to solve problems for the consumer. We need to solve something like moms are not able to make their kids eat fruits and vegetables without a drama crisis every day. So how can these technologies help solve that problem? We are not more focused on that. We're focusing on, we're gonna save the planet. So this is why you need to buy this product. It's not gonna work that. I'm, 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 it's caricatural. Not all the companies operate that way, but we need more consumer research to identify what are these big progress that is needed in consumers' life that we need to address so that consumers buy the product. Second, we need to understand how we're going to communicate these technologies. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the technologies, the technologies themselves, the value proposition. What does this technology bring to society? Okay, we're building a capability in Ohio or whatever. And so therefore, look, we're employing people in Ohio where the sourcing comes from the US. Uh, so it's it's a whole narrative that goes with the technology. It is safe. It is this. It's not just okay. We're putting a bacteria in a bioreactor and it does this and this and this. Then we we lose the consumer. First of all, it has to be a very very clear benefit to the consumer. And if it's not a very clear benefit to the consumer, forget about it. And then the way we talk about the technology needs to be actually more holistic than just technology, but everything that actually goes around the technology and what is bringing to society. And that, I'm afraid, is not something we're yet good at. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for pointing all that out. And um, Hopefully, it's something those that we're not so good at, something we can work towards to improve on. Um, tell us a little bit about your work at Nutrition Sustainability Strategies and um, what you're looking to accomplish. <laughs> so, at Nutrition Sustainability Strategies, what we do is really support companies that are improving, aiming at improving the food system in their innovation strategy most of the time, a lot of startups are monoproducts and don't think about their innovation pipeline. Um, we have a lot of conversation with the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the startups about consumer and about the size of the opportunity that they have. Sometimes really they're like so focused on mimicking the meat or the fish or this, that they actually don't look at other jobs that can be delivered. We help a lot of companies on regulatory because we've been working on regulatory. I've been working on regulatory for 25 years in 
the US, in Europe, in Japan, in China, in all of these geographies. And so currently we're having a lot of companies in their grass notice, in their novel food, in their uh, claims, structure function claims, or, or some that are aspiring to do claims. Um, we, uh, we do a lot of diverse things and so, and, 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 and the overall strategy of the company. So um, being an executive in the food sector for 25 years, so uh, I, I, I do some coaching of CEOs and founders. Um, so yeah. That's great. That's really great. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, here's the good news. And I was very surprised when it happens. Nutritionsustainability.com actually was available. So that's okay. my website. And my email is maha at nutritionsustainability.com. <laughs> Very simple. So you have it, um, listeners, if you're innovating in the space and you want to talk to an expert about the next step, uh, you got the information and it would also, this information will also be in the show notes so you can reach out and connect with Maha directly. Maha, thank you so much for making time to connect today to share your insights and um, uh, thoughts about the food industry with us. Uh, really, really uh, great speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and uh, appreciate it. And I hope uh, the people who listen to this will uh, like, will find some interest in it. And again, if you have questions, maha at nutritionsustainability.com. Thank you. And to everyone, till the next time when I bring another exceptional guest your way, do stay safe and thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.